week after week as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, I know that you'll be very excited because this week we've got to Melchizedek. <laughs> Who is this international man of mystery? That's the question. And um, why, why is he such a big deal? Why does um, the writer spend so much time focusing on this, uh, this man of mystery? Because, you know, there's only like three verses about him in Genesis. We just, we just read them. Uh, and then you just have one verse in Psalm 110. And, 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 and he's so enigmatic. And then the writer to the Hebrews is the only guy in the New Testament who um, picks up on this person, Melchizedek, uh, who had this amazing, well, this King David, this, this promise that there's going to be one like King Melchizedek. And, and, and spent, we got a whole chapter about this international man of mystery. Why does he do it? Well, the good news, as I studied this week, is that really this chapter's not actually about Melchizedek. It's actually about Jesus. Uh, that's, that, that's why we're focusing on Melchizedek today. And if you're, if you're here for the first time, it, it's <clears throat> it might help you to know a little bit about the context of the people that he's writing to and uh, you know why he's writing this letter. Uh, the letter was written to Christians in the first century uh, who had a Jewish background. Becoming Christians had caused them opposition and hard times and so some were thinking of going back to their Jewish faith where life would be easier and safer and so what we have here in chapter 7 is a very detailed argument from their Jewish scriptures to show that Jesus was not some newfangled idea but the very fulfillment of what was promised in the Bible and so it would absolutely be crazy to give up on Jesus, to turn back from Jesus and go back to something that is now inferior and obsolete. And so really the, the focus of this chapter, I hope you don't go away today and you're chatting about Melchizedek because I hope today you're going to go away and you're going to talk about how amazing Jesus is because that's the, that's the point of what he's doing here, to remind us of the great blessings, the incredible privileges that are ours if we are trusting Jesus Christ. And I think that's the enduring significance of this letter for us today. Um, we especially need this in 21st century Scotland uh, because superficially it would be a lot easier to simply flow with the, with the cultural values and not allow the Bible to shape or make any difference to our lives whatsoever. Is it worth it? to be a Bible-believing, Jesus-following Christian today? And to answer that question, the writer of the Hebrews wants us to first consider, help us to consider the greatness of Melchizedek. Because when we get that, we're going to see the superior greatness of Jesus. That's, that's where we're going. And to know him is worth every 
cost. To have him is more precious than anything else. That's the point. So please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. And you'll find it on page 1205 in the church Bibles. Open up your Bible app on your phone or whatever you're going to look at. Uh, It'll be very helpful to have the Bible text in front of you today. Hebrews chapter 7, page 1205. I'm just going to read from the the last sentence of chapter 6 as we get into it. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to the tribe Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever 
Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has become, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And like the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. This is God's word. Well, this chapter breaks into two main sections. Uh, the model that is Melchizedek in the first 10 verses. Move on to the next slide. And then the fulfillment, the fulfillment that is Jesus. So the first 10 verses get us to consider the greatness of Melchizedek so that in the rest of the chapter we might recognize the superior greatness of Jesus. So let's think about these two points. First of all, consider the greatness of Melchizedek. So there's, there's a lot of mystery around this man. Uh, as I said, there's only three verses uh, in the book of Genesis about him. The events happened after Abraham was victorious in a battle. And as he returns, we read of how this man Melchizedek, who also worshipped the true and living God, he came out to meet him. He, he brought him bread and wine and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of his plunder that he had won. That's it. It's very short, very enigmatic. And um, there's kind of mystery here. And you get absolutely no sense of its significance until about a thousand years later, King David wrote this psalm, Psalm 110. Now, Psalm 110 is a very significant psalm. It is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Because in it, God speaks to King David about a future coming king, the Messiah. So the very first verse says this, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So here's David saying, he's speaking, he's saying, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. Jesus used this psalm. Uh, David was saying, look, I, I, there's someone coming after me. Someone who's going to be greater than me. Someone who God is going to bring and win an eternal kingdom with. And, uh, and then in that very same psalm, in verse 4, we have this statement. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. 
Now this makes it a very significant psalm. God's people have put on notice that God promised to send someone who is both a king and a priest. Now King David must have puzzled over this. Because the very fact that David was king was because the first king of Israel, Saul, had tried to act like a priest when he was told not to. And so for doing that, Samuel turns up and says to him, you're fired. It's all over. You can't do that. In Israel, kings were not to act like priests. And certainly priests would have a big troubles if they started acting like kings. But God promised to send someone who would be who would be just like Melchizedek, a priest and a king. Now, in our modern years today, we sort of struggle to understand what, what a king was and what a priest was. We, you know, what, what is the job of a king? Forget about the constitutional monarchy that we have, where there's sort of all the trappings of power but no power. Well, we're thinking about a king who has uh, all the trappings of power and all the power. Uh, go back to the time when the, uh, the king had the total authority to rule over his subjects, to be responsible to protect them from the enemies, the ability to uh, call armies together and wage war against nations. The king was the one who determined the laws. His word was law, and he, and he judged those who broke that law. He executed that. What's the job of a priest? Well, look back at chapter 5 and verse 1. It tells us what a, what a high priest did. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters relating to God. The priest has this very important role of relating the people to God. In what way? Well, it says there um, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray. This was God's kindness that he gave them a priest, recognizing that people had a sin problem. And God graciously sends them one like them, a priest who can deal with them gently and, and can instruct them and can offer uh, sacrifices for their sins and properly relate them to a holy God. That's what priests do. They act as a mediator. And so here's a wonderful promise in Psalm 110 that someone is coming who's going to have all the power of the king and then all the mercy and compassion of a priest. Someone who'd rule over the people and at the same time minister grace to the people. It's a rare and wonderful combination. And the model of it is there in the Old Testament in Melchizedek. And so we're going to consider quickly five things about Melchizedek before we consider five things about Jesus who fulfills the, the promise being promised here of one who is in the order of Melchizedek. So first of all, five things about uh, Melchizedek, the ways in which he resembles Jesus. Firstly, he was a king. 7 verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem. Now considering the area where Abraham was, he's quite possibly the king of the place which became Jerusalem. And the writer notes that Salem means peace. And so here was 
the king of peace. And, and then writer tells us that his name Melchizedek means righteousness. And so we have the man called righteousness who is the king of peace. Now it's very hard, isn't it, not to think about Jesus who in chapter 1 uh, of Hebrews is described as the son of God who will rule over an ev everlasting kingdom with righteousness. He loves justice. He hates wickedness. Second thing about Melchizedek, he was a priest. He was priest of God Most High. He worshipped the same God as Abraham. In a verse or two later in Genesis' account, Abraham describes God as the God Most High. And Melchizedek acknowledges that there's only one God who created heaven and earth, and that this was the God who had enabled Abraham to win his great victory over his enemies who'd attacked his family. And so this king was also described as a priest, someone who could be this mediator and bring about forgiveness that would keep people safe before God. And so here's another way that Melchizedek was just like Jesus. And of course, this is the big point of Hebrews, that uh, he wants them to understand that Jesus is the ultimate high priest. Thirdly, Melchizedek was without a time frame. Verse 3. If you read the, the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, you'll see that there's a great interest in genealogies. Nearly everybody's got a genealogy. You know, where did they come from? Who's the father, the father, the father, this, father, that? But with Melchizedek, he just appears on the scene. There's no genealogy. He just appears. Verse 3 tells us there's no mention of his father or his mother. He, he gets no start date. He gets no end date in the literary account. And so he appears to be someone who's almost timeless. And we leave him in the story of Genesis continuing to function as a priest. There's a literary sense in which he's a timeless individual. Which in another way resembles Jesus, the Son of God, who remains a priest forever. Fourthly, Melchizedek was a giver of blessing. In the Genesis account, we read of how he comes to meet Abraham and he gives him bread and wine. Uh, he offers this hospitality and refreshment to Abraham. He's just come back from uh, going massive journey to uh, defeat the enemies and, and, and rescue his, uh, his, his brother. And so he, um, he brings these refreshments to him. And then he offers a prayer of blessing upon Abraham saying this, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hands. And the point of that is explained in, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 7, that without doubt the lesser is blessed by the greater. And for his readers who came from a Jewish background, they'd grown up considering Abraham as the great one. And, uh, and so the writer points out, you know what? There was somebody greater than Abraham. Their great patriarch, their founding father, the one who received the promises from God. And yet, Melchizedek blesses him. There's a sense in which Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And of course, this flags up that, that another way that he's just like Jesus, that Jesus is greater than Abraham. Fifthly, Melchizedek was the receiver of the tithe. See, according to the law in Israel, uh, as we learn in verse 5, the people were to tithe their crops 
in order to provide for the priests and their duties at the temple. And out of the 12 tribes, the only tribe of Levi could become priests and um, collect this tithe from the people. And so the writer to the Hebrews wants them to consider how great Melchizedek was. He was the one who received the tithe of all of Abraham's plunder. As Abraham recognized him as a priest of God that should be supported. Now before I go into the significance of this act of tithing from this bit of Hebrews, a little side note for us because we're in a season where we're praying and thinking about our own financial giving here at Charlotte Chapel as we look to support the work of the gospel through this church. Although the New Testament doesn't mandate a percentage of what we should give of our income to support the work of the gospel, it's interesting to me that this principle of giving 10%, this tithe, is deeply embedded in the Bible. It's interesting to see that this principle um, of tithing to support the work of God's servants is there even before the law comes along. So in our heads we think, well, you know, tithing, that's just the Old Testament law and that's now obsolete. Well, it's interesting. Before the law, Abraham tithes. This is the first mention of tithing in the Bible. This is the first mention of the priest in the Bible, in fact. And um, Abraham gave a tenth of the plunder. In the original, the tenth of the top. The, the, the best parts of the plunder he's given to the servant of God who blessed and nourished him. And so Christians have found this principle of um, 10% very helpful as a way to think about their giving to their local church. To look at their income. And uh, the first thing they do when the money comes in, give 10% of it to the Lord's work and then live off the rest. And it's amazing how God blesses that commitment of giving. You never outgive God. It's amazing how far that 90% that you have stretches. So that's an aside. The reason that the writer points this out is to press home a rather unusual point in verse 9. That as the tribe of Levi would one day come through Abraham's descendants, then this giving of the tithe by Abraham shows that in some way the priesthood of Melchizedek was superior to the priesthood of Levi. That in some way those who would receive the tithe were the ones who through Abraham gave the tithe to Melchizedek. And so it shows that the, the priesthood of Melchizedek, the order of Melchizedek is, is top trumps. It beats the order of Levi. And in this way, of course, Melchizedek resembles Jesus because his role as a high priest was superior than the old line. So there's the greatness of Melchizedek that he wants you to think about. But of course, as I said at the beginning, the point of this passage is not to go away and think, oh, what a wonderful chap was Melchizedek. It's this point, is that actually when we see that, then look at how superiorly great is Jesus. And that's what verses 11 to 28 spell out. Consider the superior greatness of Jesus. Here's five summary points about the greatness of Jesus. Firstly, Jesus was necessary. Verse 11. Now remember, when David was writing this psalm, the Levitical priests were doing their thing in the temple. And yet David writes this psalm. 
about this promise that there's one coming in the order of Melchizedek. See, if perfection had been achieved through the Levitical priesthood, if if that whole system uh, against the Old Testament law was the perfect system, why is it that David promises another order of priests that's coming? And the answer is quite simply this, because the priesthood from Levi and the whole of the Old Testament law couldn't save anyone. In the language of verse 18, it had to be set aside because it was weak and useless. The law is is brilliant at revealing to us our sin and our need of a savior. It's utterly powerless to achieve it. Uh, We need um, better news. We need Jesus who's absolutely necessary so that our sins could be forgiven and that we could be eternally saved. Second point about Jesus, that Jesus was promised in verses 12 to 21. The priests from uh, Judaism became one simply because they were descended. Their dad was a, a priest. And their grandfather was a priest. Jesus didn't come from that tribe. He was from the tribe of Judah, it points out. He came in fulfillment to the promise that uh, came to David that was written in that Psalm, Psalm 110. In fact, he came as a result of a sworn promise by God. You know, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So even as they might be tempted to think about going back to Judaism and and coming under the care of the priests of Levi, they need to remember that Jesus was not only necessary, but actually Jesus had been predicted and promised in their own Hebrew scriptures. Third thing about Jesus, Jesus is better. Verse 22, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. This is the refrain right through this letter. Better. Jesus has a better name than the angels as the Son of God. It's a better revelation of God. It's the final revelation of God. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He offers a better hope and and he's become a guarantee of a better covenant because this new priest king in the order of Melchizedek means that there's a, there's a new covenant agreement with God and it's ours through the gospel and everything is better under Jesus. The old covenant was like a shadow. It, it, it reflected something true of God. It, it told them important things about God but at best there was a distance between the people and God. But Jesus brings sinners into forgiveness and into a close relationship with God where we call him Father. His death brings about reconciliation and more than that, adoption. And it's all guaranteed by his death and resurrection. The fact that he's raised from the dead, never to die again, and in the presence of God's right hand means that what we have in Jesus is superior, better in every way. You know, when, 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 if you've got a, an iPhone X, are, are you really going to go back to uh, one of the old brick phones like that? Hello! No, you're not. 
Why would you go back to something inferior when you've got something better? That's the point. Fourth point, Jesus is forever. Verses 23 to 25. See, all those old priests died. If your hope was in your priest, then you kept getting disappointed because they kept dying. But Jesus is forever. Some of those priests were good, some of them were bad. But they died. This is a great high priest who lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. And so he's able to continue doing that reconciling, advocating, compassionate work of the priest, representing us before God. Fifthly, Jesus is perfect. Verses 26 to 28. All the other priests um, were in that quicksand of sin. And if you're all in the quicksand, no one can get you out. There was only one who stood on the solid ground of his perfection, who was holy, blameless, pure in every way, unstained, apart from sinners, exalted in heaven. And so he is able to help us. Now why, as I close, is this so important? Well, it was important for them, his first readers, and it's just as important for us. For them, he wanted them to know, following Jesus it is not a newfangled idea. It's a complete fulfillment of your Hebrew scriptures. Uh, that what they had in Jesus was so much superior and better than what they had in the Old Covenant. Jesus was necessary, promised, better, and perfect. And when you truly understand that, then why would you ever be tempted to go back? And of course, that's just as important for us. We might be tempted to kind of just go back into the flow of the culture. Not, not make such a big deal of the Bible. Not get so worked up about Jesus. But look, here is the one who has been promised to be both king and priest. Here's the one who's got all the authority in God's world and in God's kingdom. He's the, he's the king. And here's the one with all the mercy as the permanent high priest. I don't know what state you're feeling that you're coming to church with today. Maybe life's going well, but maybe you're just thinking, my life's a mess. A complete mess. Do you know what? This Jesus knows and sees all the challenges and the difficulties and the trials and the temptations and the hurts and the sadnesses and the mess of our lives. And he has the compassion and tenderness of the priest who cares and is willing to intercede for you today. And he has all the power and authority to get you out of that mess. To really meet you at your point of need today. I hope your brain hasn't fused over with all this Melchizedek stuff. Because the point is that today, there is one at God's right hand who really cares about you in your life right now. In all the difficulties, all the hurts and upset. And he has the power to do something about that. If you will turn to him today. 
if you will come to God through him today. He can help us. He can save you. See, verse 25 is such a wonderful verse for us as Christians. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Maybe you've started the Christian life and you began to trust him and, and yet you've still got into terrible difficulties. He's able to save you today. He cares about you now. He's able to save us completely. Keep us safe all the way home. If we will just come and turn to him who always lives to intercede for us, he's both mighty and merciful. He understands the depths of our problem. He has the power to get us out. He can save us from sin and fear and disobedience. He can save us from apostasy, from unbelief, if we turn to God through him today. That's the point. What a great high priest we have in Jesus today. Turn to Jesus today. If you've never done it, turn to him today. Come and speak to someone. There'll be a prayer team here that would love to uh, hear and talk with you about whatever you want to talk about. And then in prayer, help lead you before the throne of God's grace. Why don't you take that opportunity today? And my friends, let's rejoice that we can boldly approach the eternal throne through Jesus Christ our Lord. If I can invite the team up, we're going to sing that great hymn.